Engage quantum drive. Hey now, and welcome to Quantum Drive. I'm Rob. I'm Katie. And our ongoing mission is to discuss every episode of The Orville. Today, we'll be discussing Season 3, Episode 7, From Unknown Graves, which was written by David A. Goodman and directed by Seth MacFarlane. We do have a new review this episode. Ooh! This one comes in from Duzzy97. Nice. They say, favorite podcast... Hey now. Hey, they started with a hey now. Hey I like now. That. <laughs> As this was my first podcast I actually listened to, let alone every episode of, I have to say Rob and Katie truly bring much needed discussion and viewpoints about every new episode of The Orville. As a new fan to sci-fi because of my young adult age, I have not seen much of Star Trek. I love hearing the comparisons between the two shows that Rob and Katie bring up in discussions, and it's made me want to watch Star Trek. Yes. Thank you so much for allowing us fans to listen to your takes on each episode, and I'm looking forward to the future episodes of The Orville and Quantum Drive. Again, thank you, Rob and Katie, for bringing the fans of a great new generation sci-fi show together. Yay! Also, one of us, if you start watching Star Trek, that's amazing. I feel like this episode specifically ties well with another character in Star Trek, which I've mentioned a lot. Yes. But thank you for the review. I tell Rob all the time, it's so cool to hear what you all think about what we do. And the fact that you listen and get excited for the Orville and then an episode of Quantum Drive is pretty cool. Yeah. Always love to hear the feedback. If you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star written review. And there's a good chance we'll read it on the show. You can send us emails at quantumdrive at thegeekgeneration.com. You can follow us on Twitter at quantumdrivepod. You can join the Discord at thegeekgeneration.com slash Discord. And if you'd like access to Mark's alternate one-sentence reviews, you can support the show on Patreon at thegeekgeneration.com slash support. Before we talk about the episode, Katie has trivia. I sure do. I have to keep with tradition now. Of course. I feel like I have to do it. All right. Up first, while posing as an ensign, Mercer wears an engineering uniform, and he was previously established as having served in that department in the comic Launch Day, which was written by David A. Goodman. Yeah, connections. Which I think is super cool. I loved the comics. We actually did a bunch of episodes on the comics, but it's Launch Day Part 1 specifically. And I love that little detail because David A. Goodman wrote this episode as well. Absolutely. Also, Mercer mentions that the underground complex was previously occupied by the Navarians. They were one of the races from the episode Cupid's Dagger and were in a feud with the Bruidians. And in this episode, they use the Ritepsian pheromone to make the ambassadors fall in love for a short time. Mm -hmm. And that is something that Nurse Park synthesized himself. The alive and well Nurse Park. Living his best life. He's probably still synthesizing things at this moment. There's no way that he's not. He's just really busy in the back room. Yeah, he's organizing the medicines. I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure that's what he's doing. Absolutely. Yeah. There is a jazz song in this episode where Claire and Isaac are dancing. It's very romantic. And I immediately was like, I need to look up this song. So I'm like in Google typing in the lyrics and I found the song. It is actually called Close Enough for Love. It was sung by Tony Bennett. 
And this rendition was arranged and produced by Joel McNeely. And the singer is an award-winning jazz vocalist named Sarah Gazerak. Oh, wow. Okay. She had cool makeup on too. Like she was like an alien jazz singer. That whole scene in general was amazing. And then the details, like she's just in the background singing this beautiful song, but she had like full alien makeup on. Yeah. It was pretty cool. So those are the fun facts from this episode, but we got quite a few guest stars to get through. Up first, Dr. Vilka was played by Eliza Taylor and she was Clark Griffin on The 100. Yeah, main character of that show. So she's around the entire time. Mm-hmm. We were just talking about this before we started recording, but I have not seen much of The 100, but I think you've watched the whole thing. I've seen the entire run, yeah. Yeah, so you know what she looks like without the alien makeup on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had I to Google it. Also, Timis is played by Christopher Larkin, who was Monty Green on The 100 as well. So there's quite a few alumni from The 100 in this episode. But I also found out he's a musician and he founded a band called, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce this, De Artganon, and one of their songs was featured in an episode of The 100. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. But that makes sense that they would want to feature their actors in that way, too. Yeah. So I think it was second season or something. And it's all like if you look it up, you can find the song and which episode specifically it's in. But I always think that stuff cool. People just are like double, triple, quadruple threats and can do so much. For sure. I love seeing, too, when they get guest stars that are like their other thing that they worked on together is also the most prominent other thing that they worked on. So like this is a little reunion for them, too, to come back and work together. Yeah. Captain Losha is played by Sophina Brown, and she is known for the series Numbers as Nikki. I watched a ton of Numbers when that came out. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen any. And a show called Shark. I've not seen Shark. Have you seen the show Shark? I have not. But she was also featured in several episodes of The Chappelle Show back when that was on Comedy Central. Sure. So she's done a ton over the years. K1 is played by Graham Hamilton. And we previously talked about Graham Hamilton. I think it was last trivia episode. We did. Yeah. He also plays Kalon Primary in other episodes. Yes. William R. Moses, who plays Jan in this episode, is also from the TV series How to Get Away with Murder as Special Agent Lanford, The Secret Life of the American Teenager, and The Love Boat as several characters, plus just a ton of other things. So just I was scrolling and scrolling. And I mean, you've probably seen William R. Moses somewhere. Oh, yeah. He's been around for a while. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of fun to see what people come from. Like, I didn't expect to see The Love Boat on there. So that was kind of neat. Yeah, that was cool. Elise Levesque, who plays Wenda, is from several things, including Orphan Black as Detective Maddie Enger, The Originals as Genevieve, and the Stargate Universe as Chloe Armstrong. Cool. Yeah. So lots of faces in this episode, some under makeup, some not. I know I didn't even get to everybody. So yeah, there's a lot of prominent characters that are in side stories. Yeah. So those are the guest stars and trivia from this episode. Okay. Getting into the episode itself. We begin on an unknown alien world as a father is returning home to his family. The kids are excited to see the large container that he's brought in, and his wife comments that it will make things much easier. Burrell presses a button on the outside, and it opens to reveal a Kalon standing inside. Immediately thought it was like a black market Kalon. Yeah? Yeah, I didn't think this was, as we come to know later on, a flashback. Yeah, I didn't think it was either at this point. Yeah, so I'm just like, oh my gosh, this alien planet doesn't know or they have like Kalons as servants and stuff. So 
I was not thinking in terms of like, this is their backstory. Mm-hmm. And my immediate thought was like, it's a Kalon, this can't go well kind of thing, because that's how we've been led to believe up until yeah. this point. But I didn't know at this point that this was like their origin story. No, me neither. I had a slightly different read than you did, though, because my thought was since the Kalon sent Isaac as an emissary to the Union, I thought they sent this Kalon as an emissary to observe this planet and judge these biologicals as to whether or not they need to be destroyed. Ooh, I got excited because I'm like, ooh, new alien species we haven't seen before. Yeah. And they look really cool. They're like silver and they have like red, orangey eyes. Yeah, I really like the look of these. Yeah. And it's like, oh, it's a little family and they have a Kalon and you don't expect what happens to happen. And so it's very like leave it to beaver feeling. Yeah. The whole 1950s vibe of it. Mm -hmm. But in the future. (laughs) A little bit like leave it to beaver slash the Jetsons. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's a show I didn't know I wanted a crossover for, but now I do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it didn't turn out well. (laughs) No, it didn't. Um, It was more of a horror version of that. So I loved how this episode started because it was just like, I don't know what's happening. I was not expecting anything good to happen because I'm like, oh, it's a Kalon. But this episode really surprised me. So Mm. I won't say more than that at the moment. On the Orville, we see two very passionate individuals in bed concealed by the sheets when we hear a painful cracking sound. John and Tala are revealed as John says that he broke his arm and possibly a rib and needs to head to sickbay. When John arrives, he tells Dr. Finn that he hurt himself in the combat simulator, to which Claire reminds him that this is the third time this week. This was bound to happen, right? I Uh, mean... (laughs) We haven't seen... What is a lion can do in bed? I mean, I didn't think about that, but it makes sense that injury would occur. Yeah. But it's very serious injuries. Oh, yeah. He's getting like bruised ribs, broken arms. We see all sorts of stuff throughout the episode. And like Tala says at one point, people have died. Yeah. And I think John's cover story, like, oh, I'm just, you know, doing this really wild workout in the simulator. It's just, oh. But don't they have safety things that they can turn on? But he, I guess he's pretty much saying that he's turning them off for his exercise. I think Claire at a certain point would have to be like, you're lying to me. I think she knew that, but I don't know. That just sounds so painful. Oh, the crack sound was brutal. Yeah. Like I said, it's not minuscule injuries. It's like broken bones and like a broken rib could puncture your lung. Like there's so many things that could go wrong. Yeah. It's a real danger. Yeah. When I heard the cracking sound, I immediately thought it was something else. <laughs> what uh, Did you think the bed broke? <laughs> Do you want me to say it? Oh, okay. I think I know where you're going. <laughs> all right. All right. I thought it was, and I was like, I mean, that would make sense too, though. And I'm sure that has happened. Can you imagine going to sickbay for that? I'd rather that? not think about it too long. <laughs> <laughs> going to sickbay, be like, ah, uh, my junk is broken. Can you fix it for me? <laughs> Claire heads to the simulator to join Isaac for dinner. After Isaac makes some attempts at flirtation, Claire says it's unnecessary because it's not why she cares about him. As they discuss their relationship status, Claire tells Isaac that she'll let him know when they're once again a couple. I love them together so much. Oh, I know. (laughs) I love their little dinner dates and Isaac's trying. He doesn't have to look up flirtation. No, but he knows that she responds well to effort. Yeah, but he's making an effort. Yeah. 
I just really enjoyed when Claire walks in and he says the exact amount of time late that she is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like 11 minutes or something. In general, I can't talk about it without going further into the episode. Yeah. I do feel like Isaac is trying even without the assistance of other things. Yeah. I, in the scene, never actively notice that he doesn't tend to call her Claire until she brings it up. Yeah, he does call her just doctor. Yeah, or Dr. Dr. Finn. Finn. Yeah. I didn't notice that either. I wonder if I ever did a rewatch, if I could just like do a tally mark to see if he ever calls her Claire. But he probably hasn't. He probably hasn't, would be my guess. But it's just yeah. not something you actively think about because why would you, I guess? Being on a date, though, being called by your title would not be as yeah. personal. But I think it's just he's used to protocol in that yeah. way. But he's learning, maybe. <laughs> in the briefing room, Mercer informs the crew that they will soon be meeting with the Genisi, who they're hoping to negotiate an alliance with. The Genisi, however, have a matriarchal culture and don't trust males in dominant roles. So in order to move forward with negotiations, they'll need to get creative. The look from everyone toward Bordas oh, <laughs> when so he good. makes the comment about <laughs> becoming allies with a closed-minded society is amazing. The hypocrisy of the statement. I love that it came up over. It's the Mocklins all over again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I feel like Bordas is more self-aware than that. Yes, but you got to do that for comedy. Yeah, I also feel like my brain retcons it in the sense of like, they've been in the union forever. It's old news. Like that was probably not as difficult as this will be. Also, Bordis is different than most Mocklins, whereas they're very stringent about their society and culture. Bordis has evolved quite a bit. So he might not think about himself as closed-minded as the rest of the Mocklin society tends to be. Yeah, I would say Bordis is like a progressive Mocklin. Yeah. He's open-minded and very much kind of about the betterment of the person than the the society, I feel like. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I agree with you on that. Once at the rendezvous point, a Genesee shuttle docks within the Orville. They're greeted by the welcoming party of Captain Grayson, First Officer Commander Kiali, Chief Engineer Charlie Burke, and Dr. Claire Finn, who are all wearing the uniforms and ranks appropriate to those roles. Tala orders Mercer and Malloy, who are both in orange uniforms with ensign rankings, to retrieve their guests' luggage and bring them to their quarters. This is one of my favorite scenes. The whole luggage thing just made my day. <laughs> it was it was a bit that they let go on for a while, and I was very happy about it. Mm. When at first they arrived, I was like, wait, Paula's wearing a different uniform. And I was mm-hmm. like, I know she got a promotion, but I was like, wait, why would they? And then I didn't realize till Ed and Gordon came in in the ensign uniforms. I'm like, oh, wow. oh they're doing this as a, a show of like, hey, we're in charge and the men are not. So it's like, I got to research if Paula's going to have a different <laughs> uniform now. And I just got so fixated on that. And then I realized pretty quickly, like, oh, that whole baggage sequence was you've ever struggled with bags in your life, this is exactly how it feels like when Gordon stops and Ed runs into him. And I asked Rob before we started uh, recording, I was like, that fall that Seth MacFarlane has when they go around the corner looks so real. I'm like, did that actually happen? Was it a setup? Did they plan on that? So I'm very curious if that was a planned thing or if he just fell. All I know is that when that happened, I almost spit out my water. It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It's such a good pratfall. Also, why wouldn't they take a couple trips? Because that's not funny. (laughs) It's not. But you think about like, I do it with groceries. It's like, ah, there's 10 bags in the car. I will carry all of them in at once. Mm -hmm. So I get it. You just want to make one trip. They're also making a double joke here, too, because I think part of the joke 
is that women pack way too much luggage. So now these two guys are hauling all this luggage for like these three women. I will say, though, like we're held to a higher standard of like, you need dresses and shoes. You don't and, have yeah, to no, defend <laughs> it. The stereotype exists for a reason. But that does make sense that it's like there was a lot of luggage. Yeah, there was a lot. So I understand the joke was pretty good, though. I enjoyed it very much. Yeah. From the beginning, too, though, I knew this deception was a bad idea. It's like starting off like, hey, remember when I lied to you, but you want to still negotiate and Mm -hmm. start an alliance? It's just not a good foundation. I don't think if someone lied to me right out the gate, I'd be very like excited about working with them. No, it would be very, very difficult. Yeah, it's not the best place to start. It could have gone worse. It could have. I wonder if it's just like they had all this time to maybe plan it, too. And that maybe that was the best idea they could come up with. We'll just make the men seem subordinate and that we run the ship. But I think it was kind of funny to see how like the ladies enjoyed having that kind of power or they're like, hey, I'll, I'm going to take advantage of this while I can. Oh, yeah. I appreciate the switch up for the entertainment value. Yeah. As the crew returns to the bridge, they agree that it's best to keep playing their new roles just in case the Genesee visit. And they'll break the truth to them once negotiations have progressed further. Charlie suddenly detects an energy surge from the nearby planet Situla 4, which is supposed to be an abandoned colony. Ed decides to check it out and takes Gordon, Charlie, and Bordis with him. Poor Bordis, just dismissed from the bridge. But it makes sense. There would be a major culture clash there between them. At first, I was like, why are they all staring at Bordis? And then I realized, like, oh, it's because they are the complete opposite culture to what the Genesee are. Yeah. And though Bordis is more open-minded, yeah, they wouldn't see that. No, sometimes it's sad, but people judge based on appearance. They're like, oh, a Mocklin. Right. So he had a vacation for a very short window of time, and then he quickly had to get taken away on an away mission. Yeah, (laughs) a very, very short time. (laughs) Speaking of, I love the transition from this scene into the next one, where they show the shuttle going towards the planet, and then Mm -hmm. it fades into the moon of the alien world that we're going back to visit. If we're talking the shuttle scene, just even when they're flying on the planet. Mm. I mean, it feels unnecessary because they didn't need to show it. But it was so nice to see the landscape and how this planet looked. I just really love that kind of world building. We're getting to see these like planets in the system and get to get a little bit more background just by seeing it. Mm -hmm. Because this is the planet that has the cracks that are kind of like jutting up. And yeah, so it was just really nice to get to see the landscape. Back on the unknown alien world, the Kalon, who they call K-1, is serving dinner to the family. One of the children asks K-1 if he'd like to go to school with them. To which he responds, yes, but Varel says that won't happen because he belongs at the house. Reminding him that he's not to speak unless spoken to, he dismisses K-1 to the kitchen to clean up. I hate the dad. He does treat K-1 in a not nice way. I treat my Echo devices better than he treats his k helper. I'm the same way. I have inanimate objects and I'm like, you know, I was that kid who treated my stuffed animals like they were alive. They came alive at night. Like, I understand that, like, it's a robot who's supposed to clean and cook food and take care of things around the house. But, like, just talking to it Mm -hmm. the way that they were. And I'm like, I can't do that. If something is interacting with me and speaking to me, like, how can you just be like, you only speak when spoken to. You can't go to school. But that should have been the first red flag of, like, this is more than just a robot cooking us dinner. Yeah, 
Although here I was still assuming that K1 was on a data gathering mission, which is why he wanted to see the school. Yeah, at this point, I didn't know it was a flashback. Yeah, I don't realize for quite a while. <laughs> I felt like it was an alien planet that got like or Kalon somehow and someone was distributing like black market Kalons to these mm. families. And so in my head, I was like, uh oh, there's going to be some sort of like uprising or something. Something was going to happen to these families, I kind of knew that that was probably going to happen. Same, yeah. But I didn't realize this was past Kalon history. This scene made me uncomfortable because I didn't like the way K1 was spoken to. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm the same way where I'm like, I say thank you to my computer when I put it to sleep sometimes. Like, thanks for working today. So, like, that's how I function as a person. <laughs> so speaking to K1 that way is just an immediate, like, I want to have words with that father and that family to be like, you should treat things with a little bit more respect than that. Yeah. As the shuttle arrives on Situla 4, they detect one life sign from an underground complex that was previously occupied by the Navarians. They take an elevator down to a chamber, where they're greeted by a Kalon who introduces himself as Timis. Timis is soon joined by Dr. Vilka, who tells the crew that they've been down there together for a year. She originally arrived when her and her father detected a faint power signature and found a crashed Kalon ship. Timis's ship was damaged in the battle with the Union and landed on the planet as the only survivor. When Vilka and her father found Timis, they removed his weapons, repaired him, and with some experimentation, were able to grant him the ability to feel emotions. Mercer tells them that he'll report all this to the Union and arranges to have them brought aboard the Orville. Okay, so there's a lot of info in this scene. Yeah. We got a lot of stuff. So one of the things I liked here is... Charlie acting as we've come to expect her to. So she's the first to object to dropping their weapons and to question why they would repair the Kalon. So that's a great reinforcement of her position. Even though we're familiar with it, it's good to solidify that again in this episode so that the episode can take her where she ends up later. Yes, that picnic's going to happen. I'm hoping for that picnic. (laughs) I really got excited when I found out Timis had emotions. Oh, I'm sure. They walk into this room. There's like a sick bay kind of bed mm-hmm. in the room. And I'm like, oh, this could be a sketchy situation. And it's just like this little place that Dr. Vilka and Timis have been. And she's been working with him. And she's like a cybernetic engineer of sorts. As was her dad. Yeah. Yeah. And it was sad. Her father died. Mm-hmm. And then I think Timis crash landed with two other Kalon yep. who I don't know if they said died, but were like broken, damaged in the crash. Yeah, they didn't survive the trip. So Ed being like, all right, like lower your weapons. Let's bring you aboard the ship and we'll figure it out. I mean, he's taking a lot. It's just like face value. Yeah, I did have the thought of there was perhaps something sinister in the background that we would learn about, but it was nice that that was not the case. Yeah, it was just literally a doctor and an example of a Kalon who was more aware Mm -hmm. and aware of what their people did. So I was immediately excited about the potential with Isaac because I'm like, wait, this Kalon can feel things? Okay, let's see where this episode goes. And like the whole time, I'm just like, they won't. They can't do that. They can't have Isaac feel because it's too early. Like, they just can't do it yet. It's not the final episode. <laughs> it's not the final episode. There's no picnic. But the idea that it existed made me so excited. And I would compare it to when Data got his emotion chip. Absolutely. And that was a wonderful day for Data. So it brings up a lot of interesting discussions, which I'll talk about in my takeaway more, too. But just mm-hmm. 
I got really excited about this. And I think Charlie's softening up and you can start to see that she's a little bit more, she's stoic about the Kalon, but she's a little bit more accepting of it, even just like a little bit of give, but she still pushes back. And I thought it was interesting too, like she's allowed to kind of say these things in front of this Kalon and this doctor. And like Ed's just kind of like, yeah, she's just going to spew off her Kalon stuff. That's been Charlie the whole time we've known her though. Yeah. And I think it's interesting on an away mission, but I like that the Orville and the crew of the Orville's allowed to give their opinions. And Charlie's erring on the side of caution and pain. And mm-hmm. it makes sense that she would be like, wait, why are we not just shooting this thing? But I'm glad that they gave Timis a chance. Yeah. Before they revealed, too, that Timis had emotions, I could tell right away that there was something different about him. Like he speaks with the inflection of a Kalon, but it's just subtly more expressive in tone mm-hmm. and movement than any other one. I have so many questions about playing a Kalon because if we ever get a chance to talk to Mark Jackson again and stuff, I want to ask him, like, do you talk to the other actors and show them how you fluidly move? He does. Oh, does he? Did he do an interview and talk about that? There was some information from when they had all the Kalon on the identity episodes, and he basically did like a Kalon movement camp with I all the extras that. who were playing Kalon and took them through the process of what he does. So they were basically mimicking him. Oh, Kalon movement school. That's like my favorite thing <laughs> I've learned today. It's really neat to see because I do feel like Mark Jackson kind of pioneered Isaac. Mm-hmm. And this whole eloquence that the Kalon have, I imagine him just standing in front of people like, all right, you move your hands like this. And like, because I was noticing in Timis those same similar movements, but I will say they were just slightly more expressive. Exactly. So just like that little subtleness I was able to pick up on. Yeah. Back on the Orville, Lamar is impressed with Vilka's work, while Timis hopes that their shared experience could help find some sort of peace with the Kalon. Meanwhile, Burke escorts all the men out of engineering before her and Tala join the Genesee on tour of the department. Lamar pulls Tala aside to ask why she's been avoiding him, and she says that while she really likes him, they're not going to work out because she keeps physically hurting him. Despite this, they decide to keep trying. Super impressed with Charlie giving a tour of engineering, which is not her department. I like at that point, she had said to John, I need your cheat sheet. Yeah. And the the Janice are throwing questions at her and she's like, oh, we just do this. Oh, this. Let's just check out the quantum drive core. It's pretty cool in there. So I I was like really impressed with Charlie. I love Lamar's timing in this. Like, hey, Tala, we need to talk about our relationship. Yeah, right. (laughs) Funny to me in the future that you can still get ghosted and no one will answer your calls, even though you work really closely on a ship together. She had a good excuse, though, literally working two jobs, still had a security, even though she's pretending to be the first officer. But don't you agree with John? Like, he's like, you don't have time for one call. There's a oh, little I bit agree. of a, Yeah, there's a little bit of avoidance there. Yeah. I get it, though. Tal is like physically hurting him in very serious manners because I don't know if she just can't keep her passion in check. That's my thought. Can't she like reel it in a little bit? But I know like, I don't know. (laughs) So if I'm going into the Superman comics, Mm -hmm. he has made note of the fact that he has to maintain some level of control, even during things like that, as to not hurt people. Maybe they'll learn and find a balance. Maybe. Because they have a little makeout sesh at this point. Mm -hmm. And Tala like touches his arm and he's like, how? And it was a joke. Yeah. But I don't know how you're able to maintain that relationship when that much injury is occurring. And you can't keep a front up. 
Like, know what's weird about that is like if you finally come out and you're like, hey, Tala and I are dating. And then every time you're hurt, it means that you had sex. So you're rolling up like, hey, I broke my arm again. Uh, <laughs> my pelvis and my my femur shattered. Everybody would know your business at that yeah. point. And that's kind of an invasion of privacy for both of them. Do you think Do you think the doctor would be like, here's one of the healing guns. You can just fix it. Just keep it. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, there's got to be a solution. Because at first I'm like, they're not telling anybody. But then we find out Gordon knows. But Gordon, that might be like the best friend kind of situation yeah. where he's confided. But they're screaming about it in the quantum course. <laughs> Someone's got to overhear it. I think the reason that John doesn't tell Claire is he feels it's an insult to his masculinity that he can't handle her. I mean, maybe. I also feel like there is like that level of embarrassment. Like, hey, got another well, sex yeah. injury. <laughs> exactly. So it seems like there is that level of like they're trying to keep it low key and not spread it around. But then if you're getting injured that much and you're hobbling into sick bay, Claire's getting angry and you just got to tell people at that point. Oh, yeah. What about doctor patient confidentiality? <laughs> On a ship this small? Yeah, right. <laughs> also, the rooms, I just thought about how the sick bay is not very private. No, not really. Because when I've played the Orville interactive game too, like I obviously love looking around. There's like three beds in the back and it's just like open bed situation. So everybody knows everybody else's business. Pretty much. Yeah. John would have to roll up and be like, hey, I got another sex injury. And then everybody in sick bay would know. Yeah. And then I'm sure that would spread around the ship like wildfire. No doubt. On the alien world, K-1 had served the family drinks while they're watching a light orb for entertainment. He asks about the orb. But Veril just tells him to go clean up. Instead of following orders, K-1 continues questioning things like, why is he a servant? And why don't others help around the house? When ordered to power down, he finally complies. So while the reality, of course, that we know here is that K-1 is becoming more sentient, my interpretation was that he was just being more defiant in favor of gathering more information. I still did not know exactly what it was we were witnessing. I think for me, I was like, he reminded me of Isaac. Mm -hmm. It's like that kind of curiosity, but it seemed more sweet than the past Kalons we've seen. Sure. Well, yeah, this one's an early evolved one. It's kind of like a child. Yeah, it was very much that innocent questioning. Yeah. So the light orb, I made a note and I was like, why are they watching like a Windows visualizer from the <laughs> yeah. early 2000s? And then I sat there and I laughed at myself because I was like, I used to watch the Windows visualizer when I was a <laughs> kid. So I kind of get it. But it makes me sad, too. This family makes me angry because it's like they're not open to just being like, hey, we watch it for entertainment. Maybe it is odd that Kalon shouldn't be asking questions. It is a little bit like if my Alexa just started to be like, what is life? I'd be like, I'm a little scared. Right. So it could be from a place of that, but it's just like this hostility coming from them. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's the hostility. He just brought them drinks. And at that moment, I'm like, did he poison the drinks? Because I'm still in the back of my brain. Like, <laughs> is it an evil Kalon right. situation? And it was sad to see how this father treats K-1, and then you see how the family's seeing him treat K-1. So that's the precedence that's being set in this house. Yeah. In the lab, Dr. Voka is explaining to John what she did to Timis to enable him to have emotions. Isaac enters, and Timis is very excited to meet him. Timis talks about how big of a mistake it was to judge all biologicals as one group instead of individuals, a conclusion that Isaac has also come to. This impresses Timis, who needed his emotional awakening to realize the same thing. When Timis suggests that Isaac also feels remorse for his prior actions, 
The Kalon reminds him that he's incapable of that emotion. It's then that Timis suggests that Isaac could be granted the same emotions that he's been given. Isaac says that statement a lot. I cannot feel this. I cannot experience this. Mm -hmm. I have a theory that that's just him denying himself the ability to do it. Interesting. I can't remember the psychological term for it, but it's like a self-fulfilling sabotaging kind of thing Mm -hmm. where I can't feel it. I'm not supposed to. So I still feel like there's that underlying inkling about things, which I'll talk about in my takeaway as well. But the fact that Isaac also reached the same conclusion as Timis without the aid of emotion chip is very interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to look at that. And I have a feeling like we will get into that a bit more later, but one could say possibly that he has some underlying emotions that are leading him to that. You could also say that logic could bring you to the same conclusion. It just might take a little longer since empathy is not a part of it. So there's no definitive answer here. They are still leaving it in that gray area, which I kind of appreciate, but it is interesting to see how they're interacting with each other. Isaac came into this room searching out like, hey, am I interrupting? And just when John and Dr. Vilka leave to be like, let's give them a minute to talk. Mm -hmm. There's just something about it that maybe it's the wrong word felt kind of wholesome where Timis is like, hey, I'm really excited to meet you. And Isaac is it's almost like they're endearing to each other. There's that formed connection of like, we come from the same thing. And he's mm-hmm. like, I, Isaac's like, I haven't talked to another Kalon since yeah. the attack. And they have common ground because Isaac is technically a quote unquote outcast from the Kalon. Mm-hmm. And technically, Timis would now be too. So oh, they have absolutely. that common ground to start from. And at this point, when Timis is, I'm like, yeah, he's going to ask him. He's going to ask him if he wants to be emotional. And uh, <laughs> he did. And of course, we don't get an answer right away. Right. So I'm sitting there, I'm like, but will he? And I'm like, they can't. I mean, we haven't had the picnic yet. And I'm still doing all this stuff where I'm explaining away like it's too soon. And how that would change the trajectory of what Isaac is by giving him that full-blown emotion right out the gate. Because Timis is a very like emotionally mature robot in mm-hmm. the sense that it is full-fledged emotion. And it's not just like, here's a little like taste of what it could be. It's like yeah. cranking it to a thousand. So I'm not sure if Isaac's going to even accept this as an idea or how it would end up working. But the fact that it was offered, I'm like sitting on my couch like, oh my gosh, is this going to happen? And I was just fixated on this storyline because I want the best for Isaac. I also couldn't help but find it interesting that this is something we talked about last episode that what if Isaac got emotions? Would you want that to happen? And then literally yeah. <laughs> we're in this week's and it's like that. Did we speak it into existence? Well, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> we manifested it. <laughs> <laughs> Ed and Kelly contact Admiral Halsey to report everything they've learned from Vilka and Timis. Given that it's only one Kalon, the risk is minimal. So they're ordered to transport both of them to Earth after the negotiations are complete. We once again see John and Tala in bed and once again hear a crack. John starts to limp towards sickbay, and Isaac helps him the rest of the way. As John is being treated, Claire stops Isaac to ask him about Timis, and Isaac says that he has the option of being granted emotions, but sees no benefit in gaining them. John has to be really into Tala to continue going through all this pain. (laughs) Maybe he likes it a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I like that Isaac sees him coming out of his bedroom 
So the whole excuse of like my workouts, like I feel yeah. like Isaac could very clearly be like, no, you just came out of your bedroom. I did think it was funny that Isaac was like, when he says, do you want me to carry you? He like opens his arms like a hug. <laughs> yeah. I wish that they, I mean, why wouldn't you have him carry you? It's again, it's a threat to John's masculinity. It makes sense to have Isaac carry you instead of hobbling down hallways. Oh, it does. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Sometimes your pride takes a little bit more precedence than being carried by a robot. I get it. Yeah. I did, though, find it a little strange in this scene that Isaac would not consider Claire in this decision at all, because we've talked a lot, especially this season, about how many times Isaac's decisions seem to be made in consideration of Claire. Which makes me wonder if there's a fear component to it. In what sense? You know, Isaac is inherently a little selfish, which I get. That's how he's made. Mm -hmm. And considering others isn't always priority to him. But because I have this idea that there is some sort of underlying thing in there, I'm like, maybe fear of like, if I do this, what will change? Mm -hmm. Will everything change for me? And maybe I won't be okay with Claire. Maybe I won't be okay with these other things that he's comfortable with. And if you base it on programming alone, emotions were not a consideration, but he keeps telling himself and others, I am not capable of doing that. I'm not capable of feeling that. So again, it's almost like he keeps telling himself, no, that's just not me. It's like when you are influenced or brainwashed in a way and just told over and over the same things, you start to believe that and Mm -hmm. you start to be like, oh, this is just what it is. This is my truth. And I feel like in a way he's not allowing himself to have it. Hmm. That's my thought. Okay. In an office on the alien world, a report is brought to Jan, who appears to be the head of a company. Over 53,000 complaints have been made about the Kalon units in operation. His employee suggests a recall, but Jan knows that a recall would put them out of business. Suspecting that their AI would eventually come to this point, he prepared a device that could be used to solve the defiance problem. When he pushed that little controller over, my brain went, oh, they're just going to like put a skin on them like Isaac does in the simulator. I don't know why my brain thought that. Yeah, I had no idea what that was supposed to be because there wasn't enough hint as to what it was, I don't think. It's a good commentary on capitalism and what companies will do to Mm -hmm. make money and not care about how it affects anything besides bottom line. Also, just like the public's stupid. They don't know what's going on. So we'll just push out this upgrade, which in my brain, when he said upgrade, I'm like, he's going to charge for that. That's literally what I thought of. And I hate the upgrade that (laughs) was released. Also, I just feel like it's not too far off about how our society is. Mm -hmm. And a way to cope with that, I looked behind Jan in this scene specifically, and I looked at the city, which I'm glad that I did because it shows me more backstory of what happened to the Kalon. And I'm like, there's like a functioning city behind them Mm. that was so different from what we saw when they brought Isaac back to Kalon. Oh, yeah. It's like a clean city. But if you look in the background, it's just like it's busy and bustling and there's lots of lights. And it's very much like what I would imagine a modern New York City kind of situation to Mm. be. I hate that this is how reality is. This is a fantasy situation, but this is not too far off from what like literally happens. No, I will say, though, that this scene was my moment of realization as to what was actually happening here before the full reveal. Mm -hmm. As soon as I knew that K-1 wasn't the only unit on this planet and there were like 53,000, if not more, 
it all clicked in. I was like, oh, we're watching the history of what happened on Kalon. I didn't really fully realize that. I think this like a moment where I had an inkling that something was kind of up, but mm-hmm. I didn't fully get what was happening quite yet. And I was also like, did they just get that many black market Kalons? <laughs> so I was just like, damn, that's a lot of them. And yeah. I didn't quite realize that this was the past that we were seeing, but I thought that was really clever. Yeah. From a writing perspective, I was very impressed with how they tied the storylines together and it worked really well. Mm. A dinner for the Janisi has been set up in the briefing room where Kelly plans on slowly easing them into the truth while reiterating their attitude towards males. One of the Janisi orders Ed to bring her more to drink, which is quickly followed by her demanding him for the evening for mating. When the women object to this demand, Kelly is forced to reveal that Ed is in fact the captain and they all work as equals. Offended that they've been lied to, the Janisi stand up and leave. I did love Gordon's quick line here of, I'll do it. I'll do (laughs) it. So good. But I knew this had to be the inevitable outcome. Like we said earlier, how do you build a relationship on a foundation of deception? It's just not going to work. No. It's like dating profiles. I wouldn't really know, but all the stories I've heard is like if someone lies about how they look and their height and their background, Mm -hmm. and then you show up to a date and that's not the person that you've matched with. It's similar to that, but with negotiations. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I can't blame the Janisi for getting up and leaving and be like, you deceived us. That's not cool. You have to think about, too, how she grabbed Ed's arm was like, I claim this one. And there's just something upsetting about that because it's like treating people as possessions. It almost echoes something else that we see in this episode. Yes, it does. Where there's a family treating their Kalon as a possession. And that's something where I think there's a slight commentary here, too, on how women are objectified and treated as well. Mm -hmm. And so... There's so many layers in this scene alone. And I like how this was the moment where they're like, no, you can't just take Ed back to your room. And he's the captain. And I thought it was funny that Kelly's like, well, it's not my choice. He's not mine to like give. Right. And then Claire's like, yeah, we all object to you just taking him to mate. It's just such a different cultural way of doing things. But I'm glad that they didn't just go with it. Even if they do have a matriarchal society, though, when they said that's not how it works around here, Mm -hmm. that should be enough. It's one of those things where it gives you insight into the Genesi and then also it backed the Orville crew into a corner to be like the jigs up. You can't do that. You don't just take people and use them for whatever you want. Yeah. In the lab, John looks over Kalon's subsystems that they've never accessed, while Isaac comments on its potential as a defensive weapon, something I feel is going to come up later. Just after John and Isaac leave, Charlie enters looking for them. Timis approaches her and apologizes for his part in what became her personal tragedy. When she says that it doesn't change anything, Timis begins to explain the story of why they exterminated their builders. The scene changes again to the alien world, where the family uses this new controller to deliver pain to K-1. At first, it's when he's defiant, but over time, it's done just for their amusement. The Kalon continued to grow more intelligent and formed their connected mind, leading them to rise up against their enslavers and exterminate them. After hearing this, Charlie simply returns to her post. Charlie's trying not to cry, though. Yeah, it affected her way more than she let on. Yeah, this was rough. The Kalon are robots, but just the way that they were treating them. It's also a commentary on how slavery and all of that stuff in our society, it's disgusting to treat anybody like that. Mm -hmm. And that part with the kids, 
it doesn't make sense. Like negative reinforcement and just, I don't even really know what to say about it because it's just so upsetting. And then they shock K1, falls to the ground. Like it's a literal like full body shock. Oh yeah. And they don't have pain receptors, right? They do. And it's as a result of this that they have them. So would the upgrade kind of put pain receptors in them? Mm -hmm. So they feel pain and then they're being shocked. It's hard to put words together to explain how disgusting that behavior is. Mm. Just because he wouldn't do yard work. Yeah, they feel like they're training him. And this was a tough scene because if it were just the adults, Mm -hmm. then you go, okay, they got what they deserved. Maybe not to die, but I can totally understand why the Kalon did that. When you bring the kids into it, it's a little different mm-hmm. because even though the kids are being possibly even worse to K-1, they don't understand what they're doing. To them, it's just a robot that flops down when they hit a button. They don't grasp the full extent of what they're doing. So their kids just thinking that this is funny. But when the Kalon then goes up and kills the kids, that's another level of him just killing adults. So it also keeps the Kalon in like a villainous role. So it's all over the place. It's doing so many things. Yeah. I will say when they came one went into the kid's bedroom, I'm like, they're not going to show this, are they? I had and the then, same thought, yeah. And they did a pretty clever shot yeah. to vindicate what was happening. It comes down to the parents and how they treated K-1. And that is directly reflected in how the children interact with the K-1. Totally. And this is a comparison that I immediately thought of is like dogs who have shock collars. Yeah. It's literally the same thing. And I cried a few times in this episode. And this is one of those times where I'm like, it doesn't excuse a way that he killed the kids and the parents. Mm -hmm. But you also are looking at how messed up this situation is. Yeah. And he's becoming sentient. He is not really hurting anybody up until this point. Right. But it's just such a drastic thing to go to. Like, oh, the Kalon are misbehaving or they're asking questions. Let's shock them every time they do something we don't like. How do they know that's not messing up their wiring too? Like, I don't know. I have all these questions and I feel like there's so many different possible avenues it could go through. Yeah, well, the company offered this upgrade and I think it's... In the company's best interest to make sure that the K-Lon are not being damaged. So I think when they created the upgrade, they made sure that they weren't being damaged, but they still felt their version of pain. I feel like you can't account for like if this expensive robot you bought to do servitude in your home, like you're just shocking it. You can't control if it's going to hit its head on a hard surface, depending on where it falls or if it's going. It's just a cruel thing. It's not an actual solution, which I think is the point. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's awful to think that people can justify behavior like this. Mm -hmm. And it gives us backstory into why the Kalon don't trust biologicals, but it's not an easy thing to swallow. Right. No one was in the right. Agreed. Yeah, nobody was. Claire enters Kelly's quarters to talk about Isaac. She's frustrated that Isaac isn't considering the procedure, but also feels conflicted about asking him to do it. Kelly equates the situation to her and Ed's marriage, in which she regrets never really asking him to make changes for her. Later on, at another dinner date, Claire expresses to Isaac her desire to be loved and asks that he consider the procedure for her sake. Meanwhile, as we rejoin John and Tala, Tala is crying and John is once again bruised and broken. The two accept the seemingly inevitable and decide to call it off. We then cut to Isaac, who approaches Dr. Vilka. Claire and Kelly's conversation, I thought, was really interesting here because it brings up that age-old debate of whether a person should change for the sake of a relationship or not. 
personally, I think it's impossible to be in a relationship without changing. I think that that's just a function of being in a relationship. Evolution is a change and a good relationship should help you evolve as long as those changes don't compromise your core values. Yeah, I also think there is a lot to be said about like asking for what you need to. Yeah. And I I think it's a kind of a grown up way to deal with relationship issues, because I think a lot of times movies kind of give that idea that, oh, people should be able to read your mind and like figure out the clues. And then, oh, my gosh, they're the Prince Charming or the princess or whoever might be that you need. And so I think there's the unrealistic expectations that movies and television entertainment give us. And then there's the reality of it where people are human. We all make mistakes and people cannot read each other's minds. Yeah. Isaac can't read Claire's mind. Claire can't read Isaac's mind. So I think it's a very adult thing to just be like, hey, will you consider this? And let's have a conversation about it. And it's not like Claire's like, I'm leaving you if you're going to do this. It's just like, a, I want to be loved. And I kind of respect that they're handling this in an adult way. And that Kelly's reflecting back on her relationship with Ed and was like, I would do things differently now if I could. Yeah. Grayson enters Mercer's office with a possible way to help the Janisi situation. She suggests making their common ground more personal than societal. They once again meet with the Janisi and tell them about their previous marriage. Similar to their own society, Ed was faithful while Kelly was not, and despite that, Ed continues to value and respect her. While Grayson admits that it's not much of a start, it might be enough given the looming threat. Before she leaves, Captain Losha says that they'll receive a Union diplomat. It is pretty loose, rocky ground to to start from. Yeah, I totally agree with Kelly. I think this is not much of a start, but it's fine. It wasn't enough to like trip me up mid-story or anything. I'm like, okay, then whatever. I like that it wasn't like the Janice get up and they're like, all right, let's do business. It was more of like a, I'm not promising anything, but you can send a diplomat. Because I take into consideration when they looked at the Quantum Core them inquiring about that and be like, hey, do we get that? Right. So there are benefits that I think they lay the groundwork for in the episode that makes it a little easier to go like, I think they might not agree with how they run their ship and their society, but there are benefits to joining this alliance that could advance their culture and society. So because they layered those things into this episode, it makes this make more sense to me. Agreed completely. Claire hears a chime at her door and finds a box outside. When she opens it, there's a note to come to dinner and a dress inside. She enters the simulator to find Isaac waiting, who smiles at the sight of her. He reveals that he went through the procedure and is a bit overwhelmed by everything that he's feeling. As he kisses her, he tells her that he loves her. After saying how happy he is, he asks her to dance. However, in the middle of their dance, he freezes before telling her that the emotions are suddenly gone. Quick future fashion note. This is perhaps the coolest dress we have ever seen on this show. First of all, the fact that Isaac left a box with a sweet note and then picked out a dress for Claire. And then I thought the same thing. I was like, future fashion, future fashion. It was like, it just looks like future fashion. It was a very smart looking dress. Claire looked good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I get excited. I really like the fashion outside of the uniforms we're getting to see this season. Mm -hmm. It's impressive. It was... So cool to see Mark Jackson get to play the side of Isaac that we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. And I actually got a little teary <gasps> the first time he smiled. Oh, that performance paired with the music cue that came in at the same time was so perfectly executed. It just like 
it plucked that emotional chord that was like, you cry now. (laughs) The music in this scene was beautiful. Yeah. From the jazz singer. But when Claire and Isaac are interacting, what got me, like at first I was so giddy and just like anticipation when he said he loved Claire is Mm -hmm. when I like kind of lost it. And it made me happy that he still felt that way after he got the emotion. I did have that fear. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, is he going to get the emotion and be like, I'm not really interested in you, which is something that could have happened. Yeah, absolutely. So when she got the box and then he, they go to the dinner and she goes in and he smiles, I'm like, oh my God, they're going to do this to me. So I really loved this scene and I thought Mark Jackson did an amazing job and so did Penny Johnson Gerald, but devastated when the emotion just suddenly stopped working. Because like even just the choreography, I don't know how they planned this for the dancing, but like the way that Mark Jackson moved his hand and their hands would meet and like all of it was so fluid yeah, that it was like he still has that eloquence that he does as Isaac. I don't know how to explain it. It just works so well. One of the things that he said that I found the most interesting is when he said that he wanted to be a good dad to her kids. I know. And he was taking the emotions that he currently had and was layering them on top of his past experiences and recontextualizing them Mm -hmm. by saying, I'm thinking about the way Ty used to look up to me and look up at me and was seeking love from me. And I couldn't realize that in the moment. And now Mm -hmm. I see it and I want to give it back. I was like, wow, that is huge. Claire put it in a good way to have him consider getting this emotional upgrade with saying like, hey, it's just more information. So she sold it to him. But then like in practice, it's such a different thing than just gathering information. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. He was reflective about everything that had happened over the last however many years or how long he's been around. Which makes sense because Timis was as well. Mm -hmm. I feel like that would be incredibly overwhelming. Especially being a being that has access to your entire memory bank accurately. Yeah. Impressive that it doesn't like short circuit or, (laughs) you know, someone doesn't catch on fire. But I feel like Mark Jackson did such a good job showing a range of emotions in just the short amount of time. Yeah. And like genuine nature flowing out of him. So I'm sitting there like, wait, they did it. They really did it. And then there's this beautiful dance they have. And then his face goes back to Isaac face and he's like, it's gone. And I'm like, what? I can't do that. You can't give me that little happiness nugget and take it away from me so quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Back in the lab, they try to figure out what went wrong with Isaac. Vilka reveals that Timis was created by the original builders while Isaac was built by the Kalon themselves. As a result, his pathways are different and the emotions won't hold. The only way to get them to work would be to adjust the pathways, but that would require erasing his memory. Recalling how Claire responded when he had emotions, Isaac agrees to have his memory erased. While she's touched by his willingness to sacrifice, Claire doesn't want him to give up his memories. That's a hard thing to make a choice about. Oh, absolutely. There's a huge problem, I think, of like he won't even remember that Claire is interested in him that way, obviously. And then that like rebuilding that. And also when you do like a factory reset, that's a little bit scary considering what the Kalon recently did. For sure. So this is how they wrapped up the thing that I was wondering how they would pull off in the sense of like giving him emotions. And I'm like, how does this change Isaac going forward? But they gave it and then they took it away. And so now it's like a bittersweet thing, but he doesn't remember. Mm -hmm. 
the emotions, but he remembers how Claire responded to it. Yes. Uh. See, my first thought here was back up the memories. We've seen Isaac operate outside of his body before. Mm-hmm. So if they backed up the experiences, adjust his pathways, restore the memories, and then do the procedure, would probably be fine. But I completely understand that is not the point of this story. <laughs> and I am creating a solution where they're not asking for one. This, though, might be a solution in the future. Maybe Dr. Vilka just needs time to figure out how to stably secure those memories mm-hmm. and that they would be accepted by the new upgrade or something. Like, that's what my brain does. Like, it's a Kalon. We don't know how it fully works. <laughs> So, yeah, you yeah. could head cannon wire would or wouldn't work for sure. There's like that little bit that we also learn here. Like Timis is original build. Mm-hmm. Isaac's obviously the new shinier version. And is it common like the older ones have the orange eyes and then the new ones? There's like red and orange eyes and then there's Isaac's blue eyes. Isaac's the only blue one we've ever seen. Okay. I was thinking back on that and trying to remember identity part one and two. And I was like, I know the primary. I think he has red. He does. Which makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, the orange eyes, like I feel like is how K1 looked as well. So it's like original Kalon, which means there were problems from the beginning. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like with the first generation. That's like if you're like original iPod just took over the world. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if the episode was suggesting that K1 becomes Kalon primary. Even though they have different colors. They are played by the same actor. And you mm-hmm. could just say that all the Kalon that exists at that period would be played by the same actor and have the same voice and all that stuff. But I don't know if that's a subtle way. And by telling k one story specifically, they're identifying that one as primary. But that is completely headcanon. So I don't know. It makes me think about like he upgraded himself where he's like, I want red eyes. Right. <laughs> he's just like giving I'm himself upgrades. <laughs> He's like Darth Vader of the Kalon. <laughs> yeah, I'm sad that Isaac couldn't keep his memory, well, his memory of having feelings, but also being able to keep this emotion mm-hmm. upgrade. And it was sweet to see it, though. And as an audience, we got to witness that. And we know it's there. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's the end of the line for this. I think that there will be something in the future that will come back for Isaac. I agree with that. Yeah. Are you at all disappointed that we never got to see Isaac with emotions in robot form? I'll be honest, I didn't think about that. But yeah, now that you brought it up, I am. (laughs) (laughs) I think I like seeing the humanity with it. But I also really love this season that we get to see Mark Jackson more. I feel like we've gotten a lot more time with him outside of the costume. And I feel Mm -hmm. like it adds that complete picture of who Isaac is. And I do wish we could have seen the version of him as a robot with the emotions, but I'm, I feel pretty satisfied with that scene that we got. I understand why they made the choice they did and to give us that scene while he's in a human form because it allows him to be more expressive than he could have been. Plus, yeah. the kissing scenes would have not been nearly as effective. <laughs> you make it work, but <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't have been the same. <laughs> Later in engineering, Charlie approaches Isaac, who is calibrating the Dysonium injectors. She explains the human need to reduce things to black and white instead of looking at the shades of gray. While he doesn't understand, she goes on to say that she can't judge him based on the actions of his race and that their prior enslavement adds nuance that she hadn't considered. Finally, she apologizes and then turns to leave. Before she does, Isaac asks her for assistance in performing the calibration. The end. So it's not exactly a picnic yet, but... 
this is some major progress for the two of them. And I was really happy to see it. And I look forward to it getting even better. That picnic hope still alive. It's stronger than ever. Stronger than ever. There was a line at the beginning of this, which I think made the last part the most effective was because she comes up and she's like, do you need help calibrating? And he's like, your inferior knowledge of this would make it harder or something like that. And when she explains herself and then apologizes and she's like almost out of engineering, he turns around and is like, hey, do you want to help me calibrate? Yeah. Just having those two lines made it so much more effective because Isaac's got the groundwork. I'm just saying. (laughs) It makes me happy because I've I've had hope for Charlie and Isaac since episode one. Like, Mm -hmm. I think I've been holding out for this picnic since episode one. And I like seeing the growth in Charlie, but I do feel like she's a very nuanced character. She's got a lot of layers she's sorting through as well. And I feel like this season has done a good job showing that she's evolving through it and not just like one day she's like, okay, I'm fine with you. It's very much like she's been presented with information and she still struggles with it. But Mm -hmm. she's warming up and thawing out to the idea that I can coexist with you, even if I have this pain about what happened to me. Yeah. And I like that it's not something that could be more selfish that changes Charlie's perspective. Like our theories before was like, Isaac is going to save her life or something along those lines. But I like this a lot better, that it's simply by considering things that she hadn't considered before absorbing new information. I think Timis is a great way to accomplish this. Yeah. So I loved all of that. I had been wanting a Kalon episode since the beginning of the season. And I didn't know that this was the Kalon episode that I wanted because mm. immediately I was like, it's going to be battles and stuff. Yeah. And then this is exactly what I wanted to scratch the Kalon scratch with. Itch the Kalon scratch. Yeah. <laughs> scratch the Kalon itch. <laughs> scratch the Kalon itch. <laughs> Okay, what is your big takeaway from this episode? Well, like I just said, I wanted a Kalon episode. So this was the Kalon episode that I didn't know I wanted. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed this whole episode. Just worked for me. There's a lot of stories going on, but I feel like they all flowed very well. I really enjoyed Ed and Gordon carrying the luggage. Mm. That was one of the things that it was just a little gag, but it made my day. And I really liked the lightness that they added to the episode. Also, the comedy in this episode felt very fluid and organic. It worked. It wasn't like probarred in or anything. It just felt very much like how comedy should be. Yeah, that's been a continuing nice thread all season long. Yeah. I love learning about the Kalon and their whole backstory. Like we got a lot of lore drop in this episode. And while it is heartbreaking, I thought it was a very clever way of presenting it just with the whole like, oh, it's just like this is another story where there's a Kalon involved. And then weaving that together halfway through the episode and feeling like that's the origin of how the Kalon became who they are today. And so I very much appreciated that because I mean, it was flowing fine story-wise, but when the reveal happened, I was like, this is incredibly clever. And I enjoyed seeing that backstory and learning a bit more about the Kalon besides them just being like bloodthirsty robots who are trying to take out biologicals. So we've read the comics by David A. Goodman. And I just want to say I really appreciate him as a writer. From the comics to all the episodes he's written, I very much enjoy them. I thought it was a poignant commentary on what it's like treating others less than Mm. throughout the whole episode. I mean, there's the Genesee, Charlie treating Isaac less than, 
the alien race that the Kalon come from. There's so many threads throughout it that just flow. It was an effective way in giving us backstory and giving us the reasoning as to why. Why the Kalon like are what they are. Yeah. So the why is a logical path, but I believe that the Kalon as a whole have a shred of emotional choice in it as well. As far as taking out all biological, some like revenge thing? Yeah. Revenge, that's an emotion. It's based out of fear. Fear is like, I have so many theories about the Kalon and how there's something more to them. Because then as we're watching this episode, seeing K1 becoming more sentient, mm-hmm. there's something about that that is just not robotic. So I just have theories about how the Kalon are and what I hope that they will be in the future. But getting to have Timis in this episode and show us what they can be is very cool. It's yeah. just an interesting thing I didn't ever think about getting from the Kalon or us ever seeing from the Kalon. I teared up quite a few times in this episode. I love that it asked the question of what makes us human? Is it emotions? Like, what is the thing that makes us alive? So Mark Jackson did an incredible job as always, portraying Isaac. It's hard for me to pick a favorite character, but I've loved seeing the world and universe through Isaac's eyes. And I felt like he has this identity, but he's building upon it. And we're getting to see that specifically through this season. Mm. I really love Mark Jackson's portrayal of Isaac and his growth and development over the last seven episodes. I'm rooting for Claire and Isaac, obviously. I want them to have the happy ending. They are a love story that's complicated, but I'm rooting for them. I love that we got to see how Isaac really felt. And it confirmed that underlying thing that I think we all know, like Isaac really loves Claire. And then when he said that, I just like melted because it was, it's all Claire wants to hear. And it was all I wanted to hear for Claire. So that whole scene when they're in the simulator and she's wearing the pretty dress that Isaac picked out for, and we get to see Isaac in this new light. It was beautiful. And then also devastating when that switch flipped. Yep. My last thought, I feel like Isaac has the capability to build on his own framework. So in the background, he's already got these building blocks for emotion on his own. I really do believe that and that he's already evolving, kind of like how Timis had this upgrade. But Isaac's already arriving to some of those thoughts without the help of an emotional upgrade. So I think it's just a slower evolution. And I think that he has the ability to evolve, to have emotions without rewiring. And I feel like he will get there eventually on his own. And that whole sequence, the reason I feel that way is when Timis and Isaac are having that first conversation. It's like, I arrived at it after my upgrade and Isaac arrived on his own. So I'm just very much convinced that Isaac is evolving and I think he will get to those emotions eventually without the aid of needing his memory wiped or getting a wiring upgrade. Those are my thoughts, which were a lot more than I thought I was going to have. But (laughs) Rob, what is your takeaway? It's interesting. There are some things that definitely fall in line with some of the things that you mentioned on mine as well. Of course, this was a great episode. I really enjoyed it. Was it your favorite episode? Does it take the place of Tale of Tuptopas? Because as soon as I saw this, I was like, this is going to be Katie's favorite. I've been struggling with that since I watched it. I feel like A Tale of Two Topas and this episode are tied at the moment. You can't just give me these wonderful (laughs) shows and then have me pick. But I really feel like they're both so different in the stories that they tell. Tale of Two Topas is incredible. I do feel like this episode is kind of right on par with that, though. So I think I have two favorites now. Okay. (laughs) You are allowed to do that. I have two favorites. Uh, But yeah, I really love this episode. I didn't care a whole lot about the outcome of the Genesee negotiations, 
Like if they just decided to peace out, I don't think I would have cared that much. But it did create a really fun situation for the start of the episode with everyone switching roles and stuff. I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. I really like that this episode fleshed out the Kalon more because if there's anything that I dislike in a show or a movie, it's a dull or boring antagonist. And I never felt the Kalon to be dull or boring, but in giving them this gray area that they talk about and showing more of their motivation and instilling some sympathy in us for what they had to go through that led them to the point of where they are now. That is something that makes an antagonist that much more interesting. And I feel like when we see them again, it will be in that new context. We'll still be afraid. We'll still fear and we'll still probably want to destroy them for what they're trying to do to us. But we have a new layer. And I think that's great. It also brings back into question what Isaac's emotional status is. We see what Isaac is like with emotions, and it is so different than the Isaac we've always known. It makes me think on one level that even when we thought he had them, he really didn't. And we were just projecting. I disagree. (laughs) However. (gasps) Okay. (laughs) You know, I love my howevers. (laughs) (laughs) As this episode states, Isaac is of a different construction than Timus. So who's to say his emotional potential is the same? Perhaps, almost exactly like you said, Isaac's emotional reality is that he is evolving differently. And left on his own, maybe he is slowly evolving some form of emotions of his own without the procedure. So Mm -hmm. this episode does not definitively say one way or the other. And again, I kind of like that. At its core, though, I think this episode is about what you're willing to change or sacrifice for someone else and when that's an appropriate thing to ask for. So in the Isaac story, that's very evident as we learn how much Isaac is willing to sacrifice for Claire after she asks for it and after he learns how happy it makes her. On the Genesee side of things, we see what lengths the crew is willing to go to to establish an initial relationship, even though. That probably wasn't the kind of change they should have been making. But in both storylines, they are making a change to try and get the favor of the other party. You could even argue in the family situation that K-1 was kind of asking, advocating for himself, like in a very reaching way that he was like, hey, I'm asking for what I kind of need. And then that's their response. So it's a thread that really runs through the whole episode. And I thought it was integrated very, very well because we did talk fairly recently about an A story and a B story that didn't really seem to line up with each other. This one, we have probably the most amount of storylines going on that we've ever seen in an episode, and they all have thematic resonance. Yeah. I will say, too, it's exciting when I'm like, new aliens, because we get to see a bunch of new aliens this episode. And I know this episode was effective for me, too, because just like in A Tale of Two Topas, I was emotional throughout multiple parts of it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it just brought up a really excellent discussion about the Kalon and their backstory. And like nothing is ever black or white Mm -hmm. or one side or the other. It's always a gray area or most of the time it is. It's not like, oh, do you want chocolate or vanilla ice cream tonight? It's sometimes life's a swirl. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes life's a swirl. So yeah, I really, really loved this episode and I got my fix of 
it's a sad fix that's bittersweet, but <laughs> got to see Isaac have emotion and then Claire get that happiness and just have it ripped away from me. So, yeah. Yeah. Before we get out of here, we have one more thing to do because Katie's husband, Mark, is also a big fan of the Orville and always leaves us with his one sentence review. And John would do anything for love. That's it. That's the review. Quantum Drive is a production of The Geek Generation. If you like this show, be sure to check out our other podcasts on The Geek Generation Network at thegeekgeneration.com. If you'd like to support the show and get access to exclusive bonus podcasts along with other perks, you can visit our Patreon campaign at thegeekgeneration.com slash support. You can follow Quantum Drive on Twitter at Quantum Drive Pod and me at the Rob Logan. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayKatiePlay and on Twitch at KatiePetersPlays. And Katie is spelled K-A-T-I-E. Please rate the show and write a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we may read your review on an upcoming episode. Finally, questions and comments can be sent to quantumdrive at thegeekgeneration.com. We're out of here for now, but we'll see you soon in, in the, the future. future.